such a funny, he was fucking funny as shit. And he was so cool. But he had his own demons, you know. He he had a fucked up childhood. And um, I'm not sure if he knew how to be a father. And, you know, a lot of these revelations I have in the book because now I'm a father. I have three kids. I love being a fucking dad. And when I'm doing these things with my kids, I think, shit. Why didn't I do this shit with my dad? Or why didn't yes. he want to do that with me? Like, hold on a second. Like, being, I think being a father is the coolest fucking thing in the world. I love my kids. They're awesome. I love well, fucking hanging out with them. And I, and it made me think, like, I don't know if he knew how to do that, you know? Well, maybe your dad was an alcoholic or, you know, heavy drinker because he was dissatisfied. The guy could play the flute. It's probably his, he probably had the same dreams of playing professionally that you had. And in a way, he couldn't deal with the idea that you might actually succeed at it. He was jealous of you. That, well, I mean, that didn't happen until much later. But I'll tell you, once I did become successful, that was the beginning of this new relationship. Because when, first of all, when Nirvana became popular, one of the first things he said is, you know, this isn't going to last, right? Like you got maybe a good year, <laughs> yeah. maybe two years in this in this game. And then that's it. And I I agreed with him. I was like, yeah, right. of course. He's like, so every check you make, you got to treat it like it's the last one you're ever going to make. And he kind of like instilled this fear, fatherly, fatherly advice based on this whole, my whole childhood. He was so worried that I was going to become a fucking crackhead, sucking right. dicks for rock at the fucking bus stop or whatever. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like, he, I think that he was afraid that would happen. And, and this I understand now as a father. This I totally understand. Yeah. Cause I kind of like when you write in the book, you had such a coffee addiction. I mean, Dave was drinking five pots of coffee a day. And, uh, at one point, uh, said, you know, that's why I never did speed or crack because you would have been sucking dicks at the uh, bus stop. You were so addicted. You know, I'm telling it's, you, when I tell people that I've never still to this day, I've never done cocaine. I've never done speed, never done coke. Cause could you fucking imagine like this is, <laughs> this is me. I only slept three hours last night. This is tired me right now. This is fucking, wow. this is hungover tired, Dave. Like imagine <laughs> putting a mound of blow in front of my beak. I'd be so fucked. Like I'd maybe last two weeks. Did you ever jam with your father? In other words, did he ever, did you ever take out a guitar and play and he played the flute? Don't you think that would have been beautiful? Well, I mean, it would have been cool, that. but you know, I remember hearing him play the flute once when I was like 16 years old, when I was at his apartment. He had this Ames chair where he would like listen to music and smoke a pipe and shit. And one night I heard the flute. It was the fucking only time I ever heard him do it. The reason why he stopped playing music was because he couldn't support himself or a family playing the fucking flute. And he thought, why play an instrument unless you can play it four hours a day? Right. He used to say to me, he would say, don't call yourself a musician just because you play an instrument. Like to him, it was this like this life devotion. If you're going to play the flute, you're going to fucking play the flute all day long. You're not just going to whip it out like once a weekend or something like that. So he just stopped. He put it away. And I've, I only heard him do it once. And, and then, you so, know, there were times where, like, I would send him a, a Foo Fighters record, and he would sit in his Ames chair with, like, a scotch and a pipe and a conductor's baton and, like, sit there and conduct along with the music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a trip, man. I mean, it's, a, it's really, I get sad when I think about your father. He couldn't love his son fully because, in a way, his own demons were there. He was jealous of your dream. It was his dream, actually. And here he was telling you, don't pursue your dream. Would have been a disaster. There's another part of the book that I so relate to, and I'm dying to talk to you about it because I experienced the same exact thing in my career. So you're in high school, and you know your your band. Uh, I love the name Dane Bramage. 
<laughs> Dane Bramage is the name of Dave's uh, band. It's a great name, by the way. Dane Thanks, Bramage. Howard. I, I do like it. You're laughing about it, but it is a good name for a band, isn't I, it? Listen, we 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 put it on the album cover. Yeah, we committed. Yeah. We had that name. So, you know, Dave's really dreaming about being a professional musician. He's got his band, Dane Bramage, and, uh, you know, they're doing their thing. And, of course, you become a huge fan of punk music, and it's become your life, and it's really part of you. And one of the bands you love is this band, Scream which is a you know more professional kind of band. They're actually booking gigs and they're making money and they've got a real band. And so you find out that Scream, you know, is looking for a drummer. And I'm I'm not going to tell you everything in the book, but the 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 fact is that you get an audition with Scream and they say, "What do you want to do in the audition? You want to play some Zeppelin, you want to play some ACDC or whatever the hell it is they say they offer you and you go, "No." Let's do some Scream songs because you were a real fan of Scream. That They were blown out. You knew every drum part of every Scream song. So when you went in on that, music, that, and on that audition, and this is my point in life, you got to be ready no matter what the performance is. You got to oh, yeah. be a real student. So when you did this audition for your, your heroes, Scream, in front of them and played their songs, they were blown out. They offer you the job. Yeah. They offer you the job now. A high school kid. You're still in high school. I lied about my age. I told them I was like 22. I'm like, I'm 22 years old. You know, they, they had no idea I was still in high school. You didn't even have pubic hair. No. How old were you? About my balls hadn't 16? even dropped yet. You, 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 yeah, balls. 17. You, you had no balls. You had a vagina at that point. Exactly. You were, but but, but, but the, the thing is, you go in on that audition, and you kill it, and they love you, and they say to you, Dave, you're now going to be the drummer for Scream. And you say, I can't take the job. Now, I read this and I went, oh, my God. Now, it turns out the guy who then they offer the job to because you won't take it. He ends up having a kid here. And you, you go back and you ask them for a second chance and you say, hey, uh, can I still be the drummer for Scream? And they go, yes. Now, this changed the whole trajectory of your life. Who knows if you hadn't done Scream, if you hadn't toured with them. It, you know, who knows if you would have met Kurt. You know, the whole thing could have changed. But you became a professional musician by joining Scream and by going on tour and being in a van. And I read this and I went, the same thing happened to me. All I wanted my whole life since I was five was to be on the radio. I dreamt of it. I sat in my room and dreamt of it. And... I finally, I was so bad at it, and I got offered a job. And the guy offered me nights, 10 to 2 at night, on a rock station playing progressive rock. I can pick my own music. I said, no, I turned it down. I got so scared. I was so, I felt I was so bad that people, it, it would be a disaster. And I turned down my dream job. You turned down your dream job, and I turned down my dream job. Why did you, I know why I turned mine down. Why did you turn it down? Well, first of all, when I went to that audition, I didn't think that I would become the drummer of Scream. The reason why I knew all of those songs is that's how I learned to play drums on my bedroom floor with these pillows, listening to Scream records, all my punk rock records. I knew Scream's music like back and forth to like front to back. Like I, I knew every single song, every drum riff, because that's how I learned to play. Were you that, nervous? That was, they were my Walk teachers. 
Were you nervous walking into the room when you met these guys? Because to them, oh to God. you, they were like, the Beatles, you know. They were, yeah, they were rock stars. They were the coolest, like, local punk rock band in my mind. And, um, you know, I, I just wanted bragging rights to my friends to say, hey, I jammed a scream. To say, hey, I met scream. And so when I showed up to that audition, it wasn't the whole band. It was just the guitarist, Franz. Because I think on the phone, he heard me like, hi, I'm 22. I want to be the face. He's like, this isn't going to be. But he was being yeah. nice. He was like, okay, I'll fucking jam with yeah. you, kid, or whatever. And right. shows up. And he goes, okay, do you want to play some ACDC? Zeppelin, what do you want to do? And I said, no, I want to play Scream songs. And he said, oh, really? Which ones do you know? And I was like, I know them all. Like, that was like, well, that was my Clint Eastwood moment. I was like, this is right. great. Um, so, of course, we, we like jammed through the whole thing and... And uh, it sounded great. And then the next time I got together with them, it was the whole band. And then I started realizing, oh, shit, they might want me to actually be their fucking drummer. But I was like, I was still in fucking high school, dude. And I'm in this <laughs> other band with my friends, you know. Right. I'm like, what am I going to just totally give everything up and join Scream? Like, there's no fucking way. So when they asked me, I thought about how much of my life I would have to just fucking throw in the dumpster. And wind up and just start from scratch. And I'm like, I'm not ready to do that. Because I didn't even know if I was capable of doing that. You right. know, One of my fantasies when I was a kid was that I would go to a rock show, my favorite band, who I know all their fucking songs. And the house lights would come up and then someone would say, I'm sorry, the band can't play tonight because the drummer broke their wrist. Unless there's <laughs> someone that knows every fucking song. And I would raise right. my hand and save the day. And that would be like, so I had that fantasy as a kid. And with Scream, this is basically what happened. I wind up in this basement and I say, I know them all. And we start going for it. Jammed with them once. Then I had to tell them, I'm sorry, I can't join the band. And they were like, what a fucking little prick. And so right. then I go back to life and I, I see them play one more time at a club in DC. And the fucking feeling I got when they kicked into the first song and the fucking room exploded and it was like bodies flying and volume. It was like, that was rock and roll catharsis. And I'm like, okay, this is it. Like this is, this is the feeling I'm searching for. I was working at like a fucking furniture warehouse or something. Like what was I doing with my life? I was the shittiest fucking student. I knew I was going to drop out of high school. I was like, what was I going to do? Drywall shit for the rest of my life. I'm a fucking musician. Like this is what I have to do. So I went back and I said, okay, I'm going to be your drummer. And that became, that began this process of like pulling the roots of my life from when I was a child. And I'm like, fuck it. I'm going for it. And it's, you love it. But I, I love when you explain that, like, you start playing with them. You can't even go, you're not even of age to go into some bars with them and play. Like, you got to wait out in the van. By the way, talk to me a little bit about van life. <laughs> it, it, it's like you literally lived the van life. Like, you, you had to pack all your gear into a van. You guys would sleep in the van, right? I mean, it is a hard, you have to be young and, 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 and just full of dreams in order to live that life. I feel like anyone could do it if they love music that much. That was the thing. It's like, all right, I have a sleeping bag. Like, okay, I've got the duffel bag and my drums are underneath me when we're fucking rolling down the highway, but we're going to a gig. And once we're out of this stinky ass van, we're going to fucking rock that shit as hard as we can. And then we're going to get back in it and probably sleep there because there were no hotels. It's like we were sleeping. Right. I was sleeping on the stages that I just fucking played. It smelled <laughs> like, like piss and beer and bleach, you know, and I'm just fucking wake up the next day. I was totally okay with it because well, I had the music. What was your per diem a day again? I've, I read it. It was, it was like $7, $7 a day. <laughs> and you said for $7 a day living in the van, you could buy weed. You could yeah. buy, uh, I guess, like Taco Bell or something for, for food. Yeah. 
And uh, and what was the third thing? Cigarettes. Like that a pack was it. of cigs. Like, that was <laughs> yeah. it. And you were lucky if you got that, you know. But you right. just found your way. Listen, when you're But you were being paid. You were being paid to be a musician. Oh, I was a so. professional musician making $7 a day, fucking rolling around in some rust bucket with six other stinky dudes. Like, you it's, don't, it's you, fucking great, dude. Th- th- but there's such magic in your story because, again, I was fascinated. It's the same Scream story all over again. You're sitting in the van. You guys are doing a Scream gig. Iggy Pop is one of your heroes. <laughs> you've, you've, you've spent your life listening to Iggy Pop. You know every song every Iggy Pop ever did. And you're, you're parked in your van and some dude comes by and says, hey, um, you know, essentially Iggy Pop needs a drummer. Come in and play for Iggy Pop. And you go, oh, yeah, I know his songs. And the next thing you know, while you're in Scream, Iggy Pop has you on stage with him and you're playing, but no rehearsal, right? I mean, barely. No. I mean, so, I mean, it was in Toronto and Scream was playing a gig in a club. And we asked them, what time's sound check? They said noon. We're like, fuck, what? We don't go on until 10. What the fuck? They're like, be here at noon or you get no sound check. So we show up early for the sound check. And as we're sound checking, they're putting all these Iggy Pop posters on the wall for his new record. It was called Brick by Brick. And we're like, what the fuck is going on? I asked somebody, what's, what's up with the posters? He said, oh, Iggy's having a record release party before your show. And he's playing. We're like, holy shit. Like, this is the closest we've ever been to royalty. Like, it was like, Iggy's going to be in the same shitty fucking club we're going to be in. This is going to be amazing. (laughs) And they said, no, you got, you can't stay. It's record company only. And we begged. We're like, what's, we have to watch it. Who's going to look after the equipment? They're like, they're fucking record company. Nobody's stealing your fucking drums. So we went out into our van in the alleyway and just fucking sat there and waited. We had six hours before we were going to play. And so I'm just sitting there waiting. And this guy comes up to the window and he's like, Who's the drummer? And I'm like, oh, fuck. What did I do? Like, did I burn down the club? Did I fucking... What it? And he's like, I said, me. And he said, you want to play drums with Iggy Pop? And I walked in there, and there was Iggy with a guitar. He was performing, but he didn't have a band. And he, he said, hi, my name's Jim. I said, hey, I'm Dave. And he said, do you know my music? I said, absolutely. I sat down, and we started. he started playing like 1969 or something, or I Want to Be Your Dog. And it was like, it sounded amazing. It was just the two of us. We ran through it. And then he started showing me new songs. I'm like, what the fuck is going? Like, what? <laughs> and then we did a couple of those. And he said, okay, we're on at 6 o'clock. And I was like, oh, you want to do this in front of people? Like, you wanted to do this? And I said, you, we need a bass player. He's like, you got one? And I fucking went out to the van and got Skeeter. And he came in. And for that one night, that was, to me, that was the first time I ever felt like making it. And if it was the last time, I would have been fucking good. Because not only was I jamming with Iggy... But like record company people, they thought we were his band. So they were coming up like, can we get you anything? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> could I get a carton of cigarettes? They're like, absolutely. Anything else? I'm like, uh, could I get a case of beer? Like, uh, and, and I realized like, oh my God, I could have anything I fucking want right now. And two <laughs> hours later, fan. it was over. I was back in the fucking van with my stinky friends in the fucking sleeping bag. But like, I, I, that was it for me. I'm like, okay, now I know what it's like to make it. That was fucking great. That's so Chuck Berry. I heard wherever he went, he never traveled with a band. Whoever was around, they just put him in the band and lots that's tons right. of guys. Play. I mean, that's yeah. kind of rock and roll in a way. Like, and yeah. this is it. And I talk about this in the book a little bit. It's not having a safety net. Like when you, when you see, like when Rick Astley came up and jammed with us in fucking Tokyo, we never met the dude. And we just learned the song an hour before. And I see him on the side of the stage. I'm like, Hey, we just learned your song. It kind of sounds like, smells like teen spirit. Do you want to come sing it in front of 50,000 people right now? He was like, absolutely. And I'm like, Rick Astley has balls the size of fucking hippity hops. I was like, Oh my God. 
because that is a professional musician. You should be able to play at a moment's notice, and and that yes. that separates the men from the boys. It, it, it's I, do you? I, by the way, you described that your drumming style. You you say in the book. Um, I used to reverse my sticks. I'd always play with the thick end of the drumsticks because I thought I'd get more power that way. Do you still do that? Do you still turn them around? No, I eventually flipped them back over. I mean, it's, it's the, like I said, everybody hits their drums differently. And I finally found this sweet spot where I can fucking smack a snare and it just sounds like a fucking, it sounds like a gun blast. I know exactly where to put it and, and, where yeah. to hit it. and my, and my hand just, like instinctively goes to that place now and so but no when i that for that one drum lesson that i took from a fucking jazz drummer this dc jazz drummer he sits down at the set and he's like he goes let me see what you can do and i'm like do some stupid shit the first thing he says he's like he's like okay first of all you're holding your sticks backwards you know that right and so i was so fucking embarrassed and then he had me on this practice pad going whap 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 for 30 bucks an hour I was like, mm. I can't even afford to become a good drummer. There's no fucking way. <laughs> like, you know, I, yeah. it would cost as much for me to become a fucking doctor at Harvard or whatever. And so I was right. just like, ah, fuck it. I'll figure it out myself. So you never sat and fantasized that, oh, I wish my parents had gotten me lessons and uh, they, 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 you're, you're doing just fine. Maybe it would have screwed you up. Maybe, you know, it, it, who knows? You know, one of the good things about being self-taught in anything, I think, is that without someone telling you how to do it, you don't have any sense of right or wrong, right? So you might be doing things that wouldn't be considered like technically correct, but they, they might sound good. So I never had anyone to correct me. And in doing that, I think what happens is you, you create your own sound because no one's telling you what to do or what not to do. And I feel fortunate for that. There was a time in my life where I knew that I wasn't going to make it as a professional musician. I mean, the $7 a day thing, like that was pretty fun. But I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to learn to read music and I'm going to become a studio drummer. And I'm going to go and be a great studio drummer, make enough money that I can put myself back into school and get a real fucking job. No. And before I could, do, and then Nirvana became popular. I was like, fuck college. I'm fucking <laughs> yeah. <all> good now. <laughs> it's over. You're no studio musician. No you know, the, 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 the despair you describe in the book when you have to, you know, hear Scream, they were your heroes, they took you into the band, and now you had the decision, you meet Kurt, and uh, now you're going to join Nirvana, you know, and become their drummer, and you felt really, really bad, and your mom, she's quite a woman, really, really remarkable, I know why you dedicate the book and everything to her, she says to you, sometimes, I know you feel bad about leaving Scream, but sometimes... You just have to put your needs in front of other people's. And you said, you know, that's, it's weird. My mother told me that because she never put her needs in front yeah. of mine. She, you know, well, you know what I, what I eventually realized, Howard was what she was referring to was my parents' divorce. She said, sometimes you have to do what's best for you. And mm -hmm. I, I was surprised too. I'm like, you're <clears throat> the most altruistic person I've ever met in my entire life. Devoted her life, not only to my sister and I, but to, generations of students she was helping everybody else get on with life so when she said sometimes you just have to do what's best for you <clears throat> at the time I, I i was surprised but as i was writing the book i realized oh shit that's what 
she needed to do to survive when my parents yeah. broke up. And it's, I mean, yeah. and it was, it was hard, you know, it was really hard for me to leave my buddies and join this new band of strangers. I hadn't met Nirvana when I first joined the band. I just flew up there and fucking moved in with Kurt in this tiny little apartment. And then it was like, you know, and now I'm surviving on three corn dogs a day. Now it's 99 cents a day. There's a gas <laughs> yeah. station. I had three corn dogs for 99 cents. That was like, now I got to budget that. But like I said, there was the fucking music, and that was the thing that kept you alive. So how did you know? Did Kurt play you some songs, and you knew he was going to be great, or the band was just starting to make some noise? What was going on that you knew well, to leave Scream? There was a record. Um, there was a record before the record Nevermind. They, Nirvana had a record called Bleach. They had I was their fifth drummer. They had a bunch of drummers. Right. The, but this, this guy, Chad Channing, was their drummer. He had left. So I knew that record because it was really popular in the underground. And the cool thing about it was like, you know, it was like noisy, like dissonant punk rock, cool songs. But then there was this song called About a Girl in the middle of the record, which is like, I mean, it sounds like something off of an early Beatles record. It's like a Lennon McCartney song. And you're listening to it, you're like, oh fuck, this kid can do that too? Holy wow. shit. And yeah. so uh, we had a mutual friend and they said, Nirvana, we're looking for a drummer. And they had seen me play. And they were like, you know, if we can get a guy like that, like it might be cool. And wow. so I called them, talked to them on the phone and they said, if you want, come up, fly up. And so then I was at this, this crossroads where, what do I do? Do I stay in Los Angeles? Stranded. The band had broken up. We were staying with the singer and the guitarist's uh, sister was a fucking mud wrestler at the Hollywood Tropicana. And we were staying at her house in uh, Laurel Canyon. And I'm like, really? Am I? This is the rest of my life? Really? Like now I'm in LA in Laurel Canyon? Like fucking. And so I just, I called my mom. She was right. I took the chance and I flew up to Seattle and you know, it happened. And really, Kurt was a good, I mean, you guys were into the same music. You guys had the same influences. It made sense. But Jesus, from a financial standpoint, those guys at Scream, they were pissed, right? They were just like, you, you fucking. They were bummed when I left. They were yeah. bummed. Yeah. I mean, and, and more than anything musical, I think just as friends, like we had been through so much fucking shit together, dude. Like all of those tours where touring squats. Like fucking squats in Europe where you show up and they're pirating electricity. They're burning the linens out front because <laughs> yeah. there's a scabies outbreak and shit like that. You right. know? Yeah. And there's like fucking skinheads everywhere. And it's always like you kind of you band together when right. you're in a situation. Like that. And so so to 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 decide to leave those guys and like move on with my next phase of life, it was difficult. Oh, there's so many good stories. I don't even know. I mean, I just love the idea that when you join Nirvana and things start to pop and all the record companies are interested in you guys and you get like a $400 check and you bought a BB gun and a, uh, a fucking and idiot. Howard, you have no idea. I mean, I'm really, your father was right. You know, you really can't be trusted <laughs> with money. You, 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 Hallelujah. You you're fine. I mean, a BB gun and a, uh, and what Listen, was it? Now, when I was a kid, I, and you know what? I think a lot of fucking rock musicians do the same thing. Like when you grow up, you know, my my mother was a public school teacher. We never had any fucking money. Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't have money for a BB gun or a right. Nintendo or any of that shit. So when I finally got 400 bucks, to me, that was like winning the fucking lottery. Yeah. What I did was I went and I bought all the shit I didn't have when I was a fucking kid. <laughs> and then one week later, I'm back to the fucking corn dogs for 99 cents because I spent <laughs> it like MC Hammer. Like, what the fuck was I thinking? There was a detail in the book that I love. This is why you'll love Dave's book, because this details in there. You, it, I, you see, I love the technical aspect of what you do. Here you are, the drummer for Nirvana, and you said, I always knew when I had to do a fill because I'd watch Kurt. I'd watch his feet. 
And when Kurt would take his foot and hit the, um, uh, whatever those pedals are, you guys distortion around the distortion pedal. I love that, by the way. If I had a band, I'd have fucking 50 million distortion pedals. It looks so cool when you guys like are fucking with your pedals. You're not, you know, you're not even looking at your guitar. I just love that, that rock star move. But you said when Kurt would go to hit his pedal, you knew what he, he was going to the chorus or whatever the hell he was going to, right? It, 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 it was a visual cue you had to look for. You yeah. saw his sneaker go on that pedal. That stuff to me, those little Well, details. you know, when we fucking, when we, when I joined the band, we rehearsed in this like barn in Tacoma, Washington. It was this fucked up little barn. It was gross. But we would always begin every uh, rehearsal with an improvisational kind of noise jam, right? Someone would start playing something and we'd start jamming along and, you know, it would maybe take shape and then get chaotic and then turn into a thing and then it could turn into a song. Some of our songs happen that way. So in that, it's all about intuition. Like you're watching each other and you're feeling it. You're knowing like, oh, we're coming up on the fourth bar. We're probably going to kick into something loud. And so I would look over and see Kurt getting closer to the, to the distortion pedal. And I'd know like, okay, it's here it comes, here it comes. And just as his foot would fucking get over that pedal, I go, and he'd go, bam, and step on the thing and then just go. So it was like, you know, we were famous for that quiet, loud dynamic. And it all came from that. Uh, I've watched many, many uh, the videos, and I know you got to get out of here. Shit, I no, no, no. fucking hate. It. I, yeah, know but, but, oh, I know, but um, 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 uh, Chris hangs his bass really low, like below his balls when he's playing, and it, it seems like he keeps that bass down low. Is there? What, what do you make of that? That's too low to hang your bass, isn't it? First of all, you know he's six foot seven and a half, right? I didn't realize he was that tall. Wow, he is six seven and a half. We we were on Saturday Night Live once with Charles Barkley, and he towered over Charles. But I was like, "Oh my wow. god!" Crazy. <laughs> but no, uh, he's he's really tall, you know. Yeah. But he likes. I mean, he just liked playing it that way. That bass that he played, it was a Gibson RD bass. I mean, that thing weighs like forty pounds. It's so it's solid wood, just so heavy. Yeah. And the <laughs> neck is long, and he's so big, and he like he was so tall that he couldn't even get a guitar strap long enough. So he'd have to double it up with like a towel. He'd like, basically, like, you hang a towel out the window to, like, climb out of a place when it's on fire. He would have to do that for his bass strap. And it was just wow. one of those things. And the way that he played the bass, nobody else did it like him. His feel, the way he strummed up and down. And it was that thing. Those three simple elements, the way he played the bass, the way I played the drums, the way Kurt played guitar and sang, that is why the band sounded the way it did. It just sounded like that. The band blows up, you know, again, you got to read the book, but the band blows up, you know, you get, you're knocking off like Michael Jackson off the charts. I mean, Nirvana's the shit. I mean, it changed music. I mean, the, the, the 90s really changed. You know, Lars was on here the other day talking about how Nirvana, Soundgarden, and Pearl Jam, they changed music. And he gave his whole discourse on that. It was great. I, I, I want you to hear it. But you felt really like the band was huge when you went on saturday night live like that was the the, the sort of the marker for you yeah, what was it was about saturday night live that turned you on so much was it just that you'd seen so many legendary bands yeah i mean yeah. when i was young first of all you have to my musical background it starts with the beatles and steve martin records Right. Right. I mean, it, right. <clears throat> now it makes perfect sense to me. Now I'm a, I'm a fucking, I'm part comedian, part fucking rock and roller. And that's right. where it started. But I would watch Saturday Night Live and, and beyond like the brilliant cast in the seventies and the great skits and stuff like that. The musical guests they had were so 
I, they were they were all legends, you know, and it was so right. diverse. You'd have like Peter Tosh one weekend, then the next weekend you'd have the B-52s, then the next weekend you'd have David Bowie, then the next weekend. I mean, I wikipedia this when I was writing the book, and I'm like, I can't even believe, like, this is insane. It's like more than the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's totally amazing. Insane. But yeah. so that gave me so, that gave me a musical education. I spent so much time watching that television show, watching those skits and those artists, that when I first walked in there, I mean, honestly, it was like walking into you know the Sistine Chapel. I was just like, I can't. This is it. I've, I have a th- my life dream is totally happening right now, and I've oh. been lucky enough over the last thirty years. I've done it fourteen times now, and every yeah. time I walk in, I think about the time I saw the B fifty twos tearing it up on that stage, and that inspired me to become a musician. Yeah, I watched that um, that Nirvana uh, appearance with for the Saturday Night Live. I watch it all the time. It's really, it's actually really good. Did did it mean as much to Kurt and 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 Chris to to be on Saturday Night Live, or was it just you? Like, did they hold that in high regard, or was it just like, eh, it's another thing? I think everybody felt the same felt thing, it. but it was. But I think yeah. we we all processed it in different ways. Like that level of popularity. Like I think that it's. I think it it. In a lot of ways, I think it's it scared Kurt, and it, I was sort of on the other end where I'm thinking, "Oh my God, this is I don't have to go back to f- the fucking furniture warehouse." Holy shit! Like right. I could I can I can have an apartment of my own now. Like fuck those <laughs> yeah. corn dogs! Like I'm gonna fucking make something good to eat. No van, know? yeah, no, oh yeah, no van God. anymore. Well, but by the way, you you broke your stick at the beginning of that performance. What your drumstick? What yeah. happens when you, you you have another one there? Well, does that fuck you up? I mean, it doesn't sound to me. I've watched it. I it doesn't sound bad. I mean, I mean, you usually have a, a you know an extra stick either on this side or this side. In the event that that happens, you could just like grab one like a ninja in between beats. And um, yeah, it was terrifying. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that was the worst case scenario. Let's just say worst case scenario. That yeah. then I finally wind up on that stage, and in the first song, I just snap a stick, and the, and the only <laughs> way I could get out of it was just like grab another one and hope nobody notices. You know? Does that happen a lot? No, it, it probably does. I mean, you hit it pretty hard. Well, it did because I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, so I'm not hitting <laughs> right. I'm not hitting it right, and it's backwards, and I'm fucking the total yeah. jackass. So yeah, it would happen. All right. I was told you have to get out at 10 o'clock. I'm so enjoying this conversation. I have about a million more questions about the book. I mean, we're, we're only up to Nirvana, but I recommend this book to everybody. If you love rock and roll and, and you've always said to yourself, gee, what would it be like to sit and talk to Dave about his career? The book really kind of handles that well. It's called Storyteller. Comes out next Tuesday, October 5th. Also, I want to mention that, uh, excitingly, I mean, we talked about this the last time. You're going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, you're already in for Nirvana, but Foo Fighters are going in. Did you come up with someone uh, to induct you yet? Have you have you approached? I said you should get Dave Letterman to do it. What did you do? Do, do? Did you go out and get him? I don't think I can tell you yet. Why? <laughs> Always have they secrets. Have, they have to make that decision. I can't blow it. For oh. the, I think it's it, it, they have to make that decision when they're going to tell everyone. So, um, yeah. But it's gonna be, it's gonna be fun. I mean, I'm really excited. Like to be honest, to see Nate Taylor and Pat get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it's like to me, it's like those are my guys, you know. So I, I'm of course I'm honored to be in there with Nirvana, and I'm honored that they're they're doing the Foos thing too. But I look at like Pat Smear, dude. Pat Smear is gonna be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's so Pat amazing. Pat Smear is such a fun entertainer to watch. When you guys play, and he does like that little dance move. Like he'll when he gets excited, he starts jumping up and down. I love that. I wish I could jump up and down and play the guitar. That would be a, a real goal of mine. Like I, I can't play <clears throat> sitting down. As I was writing this book, I'm like, 
shit, Pat's got to write a book. Pat's going to have to write a book. Because, I mean, his stories, like, this, my stories are, like, kind of cool and whatever. His stories are yeah. fucking insane. And so, <laughs> I like that guy. <clears throat> I asked him, I'm like, why don't you write a book? He goes, oh, I am writing a book. I said, really? <laughs> he goes, yeah, for one person. I was like, who's that? He said, my daughter. So he's going to huh? write his life story and give it to his daughter. Oh, that's cool. I like yeah. that idea. Well, maybe he'll end up releasing it, but I like that guy's energy. I like your whole band. You know, I'm fine. Taylor. I'm I like all the guys. Yeah. They're good. You got good guys. Best crew. Good crew. For sure. Also, Foo Fighters Radio returns to Sirius XM Channel 105 this Friday, October 1st. So uh, that's exciting. I'm glad to have you here with us and, uh, you know, be part of that whole thing with Sirius XM. That's really nice. Uh, there's so much more to the book. I've only given you a little taste. Uh, you've done it again. You wrote a great book. It really is. People are going to love it. They're going to have so much fun with it. Uh, good for you, man. I heard you're going to do a reading. I got to go to that. That's funny. Let me tell you something. Like, yeah, they were like, well, let's do some live engagements. I'm like, all right. Like, what do I do? Do I just, (laughs) yeah, what do you do? (laughs) Do I just sit on a stool and read the book and then play some songs? And then I'm like, no, fuck that. I'm going to make a show. And so I fucking made a show. And so it's like, it's, there's, it's, it's a production. I just, I just fucking wrote it on Sunday. I did it last night for the first time in London. And it's like, I demonstrate all of these things throughout my life, how I learned how to play this, how I learned how to play that. I play drums along to Nirvana songs. I fucking get up. I tell stories of my entire life at this slideshow as I'm clicking through it and telling all these things in the book. You are cursed like I am. People say to me, you want to do something simple? Just go read your book. You know, just, and you sit there and you go, no, it's not good enough. And you know what that is? We don't think. People can love just what the thing is. Like, we have to make it into a whole production. Then you're pulling out the slides. Now you're pulling out your guitar. Now you pull. And it's essentially now more pressure than doing a, a fucking arena show. It's oh, yeah. crazy. Well, this it, is the thing. In most of the, these crossroads that I've talked about, you know why I did these things? Because I didn't know if I could do them. Like, these right. things that I was like, why did I, like become a singer in a band. I was a fucking drummer. I could have stayed behind those drums for the rest of my life. Why did I start the Foo Fighters? Because I wasn't sure if I could fucking do it. And so I put that challenge in front of me to prove to myself I could fucking do it. So just like last night in London, that first show that I've ever done where I'm like wandering around, it was like a fucking Broadway show, you know? Yes, why can't you just, why, why can't you take a section of your book and just read it? I say it's because you're looking for love in all the wrong places. Interesting. Is that, I, yeah. I see it a little bit differently. I see it as, um, that's not, that's not good enough for me. Like, I, why, that's too fucking easy. Like, it's just too fucking really? easy. Really? That's up how you see the, it? Easy. I, I really do. Like, why? And also, like, I want to do something that people are like, holy fucking shit. I cannot believe he does that too. Like, because you have things. to be the greatest book reader of all time. That's the problem. So it's not going to be fun for you. It's going to be pressure for you. Well, I don't know if I feel that way. I I also right. feel like if I'm going to bring them a little joy, then I'm going to bring them a lot of fucking joy. Like if I'm going to make them smile, I'm going to make them fucking piss their pants. Oh smile. yeah, you're you're going to you're going to give them a lot of joy. You're not doing some book reading. You're doing a whole one man show. So that, absolutely. Now, how do you get into that? You just buy the book. That's a Broadway show. You're supposed to pay yeah. money for that. Well, yeah, do that yeah, for I me mean, now. Believe me, they're paying fucking money for that. Don't worry. About <laughs> I'm, it. I'm getting fucking paid. Damn right. Uh, no, I think like you paid. buy a ticket and you get a book with a ticket or something like that. Oh, Dave man. Grohl's book is called, it's his memoir. And it's a hell of a memoir. The Storyteller. And uh, he did a beautiful job with this book. I had such a delightful time reading this thing. Uh, 
Um, and uh, the book comes out Tuesday, October 5th. Uh, Dave, thanks. I know you got to be out of here because I would have kept you in like 17 hours. It's, it's never, it's never long never enough. enough. Never it enough. It was All right. great to but hear great you to... telling the stories because you are a storyteller. And oh. my God, some of the grit in these I, stories is amazing. I am so mad at you, by the way. I forgot I, to bring this up because I only have an hour with you, but just real quick, I got to tell you this, that part, I don't fucking believe in ghost stories or anything. And there's this yeah. huge section of the book that's unbelievable where Dave kind of proves that his house was haunted. But <laughs> I, I read on the Kindle and my wife's asleep and the room was dark. And you know that part of the book where you say the ghost face was like right up to yours? Oh, so yeah. all of a sudden I start getting affected by this. I'm sitting there in the dark and I'm like, I think there's a face next to me. It's a, and I'm like, this fucking guy, I, I, I really almost skipped over it because I was getting all freaked out. I mean, uh, it's not, it fucks me up for a really, I had to fuck it. I lived in that house for another year and a half. I was like, whatever, there's a fucking ghost in here. Okay. Here's the thing that freaked me out about that. The guy who comes to visit you and he says, hey, Dave, your house is weird. Every time I come here, I feel something following me around. And you would never even talk to him about the ghost. That just the fucking we'll house was this. haunted. Howard, there was a ghost in the fucking there's house. No such. You know, there's no such thing. Listen, I and, never and thought that, about it. I never gave. I never wasn't a ghost person. I didn't never thought that. But there was something in that fucking house. I swear to God, dude. I swear to you. And I was having these reoccurring dreams of this fucking old woman with like muddy feet and this torn sweater with fucked up hair standing in my living room. Like I'd come around the corner and she'd be standing in my living room, fucking staring at me, dead silent. I don't know when I'll see you again, but when we do, I want to talk about the ghost story and I want to talk about this chick who brings you to the psychic uh, because I don't believe in psychics either. And then the whole extraterrestrial thing and she says it's not a dream. We're going to talk about that. Okay. Don't, I'm in. Don't oh, we just do get ready for that. All right. That's okay, a little cool. teaser. Okay. He's like the new Stephen King now all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, well, I'm saying to myself, this is the plot for a movie. Rockstar buys a house and it's haunted. We're yeah, I'm actually uh, there. <laughs> yeah, I've actually bought the rights to that part of the story. I'm actually producing God damn it. it. Uh, yeah. Uh, listen, I, I, I guess you got a lot to do today. Uh, uh, love and kisses, and thanks for being here, and good luck with the book. It's wonderful. Thanks, uh, guys. There he is. Bye. Take Dave care. Grohl. See you guys. Yep. Bye. Dave Grohl. He knows. He knows. They, they told me he's got to be out by one hour, so I did it. Very busy, huh? Yeah, I had a lot to talk to him about. I didn't even... Yeah, I was kept waiting for the ghost story, and I was like, oh, he's going to run out of time. Well, I guess he We would get talk to and it. rock and roll. Well, listen. But it was so I, awesome. Some of those stories are just amazing. Yeah. Uh, you You'd know, like just the book. Little nitty gritty stuff about being in a band and yeah. the way you have to live and the things you're surviving on, and then the musical stuff that yeah. comes out as you're just going through this crazy life is. Really great. Yeah, the whole book is filled with that stuff, and I'm a I'm a sucker for that. I mean, I love hearing how musicians figure this shit out, and and um, he goes into a lot of detail. But yeah, well, that's what's wonderful. Thing. He uh, he remembers the details of the story, so well, that's what he really says. Really alive, you know, like it's when you can flesh it out like that, it becomes real to the person reading it, as opposed to. And then we went to blah blah blah, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, he even says in the book, for some reason, I'm blessed with a memory. I can actually remember all of these details. Yeah. Uh, so he's lucky that way. I know when I write a book, I got to have Fafafui remind me of what I've done. I literally don't remember yesterday, but 
Um, but even yeah, when and, he was telling that little story about writing the song with Mick, that was amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, this ghost story thing really did weird me out. I was reading in the dark and, uh, he has this thing where this ghost that he was, he could see, he could feel the face like right up next to his when he was sleeping. And all of a sudden I started getting weirded out. And I was like, I can't believe what an asshole I am. I'm getting weirded out. Like, I've never had That's a ghost like in my house. Listening to Sal and then going into yeah. his Billy stories. I mean, exactly. It's, it's Dave's story. You don't have to start seeing it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there's a lot to it. You know, there's a lot to talk about. That's why if somebody writes a book, I need about nine hours with them because Don't I have a lot of questions. Don't you think, though, that when people have great imaginations, they can almost imagine anything and make it seem real to themselves? That's what I think ghost stories are. Yeah. He's got a lot of UFO stuff. He's, he's, he's got a bunch of but things. But all of that, you can imagine anything. He's got a great imagination. I had this whole this this whole thing in the book, and I, I mean, I didn't get to. I mean, he he gave me an hour, which is fine, but there's this whole thing like that. I've, I've you know, he he loves Paul McCartney, and they've worked together and everything, and they even won a Grammy together with that song they did. But um, I was thinking about the similarities. Paul McCartney is in the Beatles. He played bass, but he could play every other instrument. In fact, then some of the Beatles tracks, he's even done the drums. Yeah. He's done the lead guitar. He's done the whole thing. Leaves the Beatles and his first album, he goes to a barn and Paul McCartney records every single song on his own, playing every instrument, every track on there is all Paul McCartney. Dave Grohl's in Nirvana. He's thought of as the drummer. Turns out he can play guitar and he plays a whole bunch of instruments. He leaves Nirvana. Nirvana ends. He goes off and plays every instrument, writes every song for the first Foo Fighters album. And look at the parallels between those two guys. Of course they would love each other. You know. Well, they can and, understand each other. It's like Paul's wandering around the world. How many people really understand what yeah. he's, he's done? Really understand it because they can do it too. Yeah. Well, anyway, if you're into music, we're doing the show tomorrow. We're not starting our usual time. We're starting at one fifteen, And um, I'm going to have a conversation with mick jagger which is super exciting i've dreamt about my entire career i love this guy so much i mean it's mick jagger you know if you love music it's again it's like talking to mozart or something he's written every great song there is to write the, the catalog is staggering i don't even i wonder if mick jagger even could name every song he's ever written like i, I bet you he doesn't he'd probably have to go he probably has forgotten great songs like hit songs he's written well, you wonder if, you know, when they're deciding to go out on tour, does he have to they... relearn songs because uh, he hasn't they... played them in so long? I know that they do because uh, they do these uh, intense uh, rehearsals. But anyway, mm -hmm. so tomorrow we start the show at one fifteen. That should be pretty exciting. And uh, what else did I want to tell you? Yeah, well, OK, we're going to end the show. I had a lot of mail from people. I'll get to that Long Island psychic. Maybe we'll do it tomorrow, you know, after I talk to Mick. There's a good sentence. After I talk to Mick, maybe you and I can uh, go through. Uh, so just throw that off. Yeah. After I talk yeah. to Mick, maybe I'll do Mick. that. Yeah. <laughs> and you're calling him Mick. It's not. Sir Mick. Mr. Jagger. <laughs> just sir. 
Yes, sir. Sir Jack, Sir Mick. No, yeah. <laughs> whatever he wants to be called. I'm going to call him Mick, but if he, you know, he wants to be called Mr. Jagger, I'll call well, him. Well, there's whatever he wants. who walk in here and you mm. say you can't, you just don't feel right calling them just a simple name like Mick. Right. I'll check with him. Uh, Dave's memoir, The Storyteller, comes out next Tuesday, October 5th. It's available for pre-order wherever books are sold. And also, I told you about Foo Fighters uh, Radio making a big return. Yeah. All right. Well, now that you told that Sandy story, was it Sandy, his first girlfriend? Yeah. I was listening to The Best of You yesterday, and I said, oh, I wonder who this is about. Maybe it's Sandy. Is someone getting the best of you now? Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Could be. All right, listen. All right, peace and love, everybody. And uh, a fa fa fooey to you peace all. Peace and love, peace and peace love. Peace and love, peace and love to you all. And uh, we'll see you tomorrow peace at a special love. time. Peace and love. <clears throat> Thank you. Bye. Wednesday on a very special Howard Stern show at one fifteen p.m. Eastern. The interview Howard has waited his entire career for. Legendary Rolling Stones lead singer, frontman, and songwriter, Mick Jagger. Pleased to meet you. Only on The Howard Stern Show. It's crazy.